The title of this evening's talk is Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. And uh, beginning with a quote uh, that comes from the Zen uh, Buddhist tradition, I don't actually know who I'm quoting, (laughs) but it's a quote that comes from that tradition. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, uh, quite a number of years ago now, I attended uh, a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various, various Buddhist lineages. One of our discussions, in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. And the Dalai Lama, His His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was one of our guests of honor at this meeting, said that um, often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization of Nibbana being the complete purity of the mind, the complete purity of the heart, has been described as the mind and heart of an arahant, an, a liberated being. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence that this really, truly was possible. And in the many times that I've practiced with the Venerable Sayadaw Upandita and the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw, both of these very venerable teachers have also spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, The Buddha also speaks of this particular aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom, in the same way. As our confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to get at least some sense that this really is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. So, here we all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in our retreat and 
in life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that, at least to some degree, we've let go of what is unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more and more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper and deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging or condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be quite a great inspiration. Inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there certainly have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practices. 
And when I've been able to really be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teaching. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and my gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in an interview with Venerable Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said, this is too hard. I probably repeated it a second time. This is just too hard. And Venerable Pawak <clears throat> looked at me with a great kindness in his eyes and this light laughter that he often uh, had or offered. And he simply said in response, No, it isn't. <laughs> 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 and it, it's really, it's true. No, it isn't. <laughs> the suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to practice. So this evening we'll explore a few of the difficult or <clears throat> afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, etc. It's a long list. Mm -hmm. From our present life's experience and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open heart, an open mind. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, 
we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. And very important, it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive or difficult states of mind. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we may have hidden from or maybe that we've judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around, hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly, and maybe for a long time. The um, poet and translator uh, Stephen Mitchell wrote a version of the myth of Sisyphus, which I'd like to share with you. And these are Stephen Mitchell's words. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is, Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside and let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, and compassion. Each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and from the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, Our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, 
or fix it or trying to ignore it or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity the oh it's really nothing attitude we begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns serve us when we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness the door to clear seeing or what I like to call seeing through is opened the beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it five or ten years ago, thirty years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, giving it continued, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain saddens what is kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. <clears throat> the Sri Lankan monk Abhante Gunaratana in his book Mindfulness in Plain English said this, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Don't condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I added, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves, watch our mind and our heart. And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, (coughs) accepted, clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We just simply resolve and persevere with patience, with a growing patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance 
and there's fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious cycle, a vicious circle, cycle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, said this. He said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet so often we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the imaginary future and solidify both in our mind and yet life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life, not 
an absolute. Here in Taos, during midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the big open sky, especially down towards town, we have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light being just right. And of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, conditional, contingent, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present this present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is, right now, right now. It's, it's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. There's a a saying in English we have, no, you all know this one, 
Ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With in fact, ignorance providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or an absence of really true understanding that is, the expe- that is experienced as what's called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So now I'd like to go on uh, with exploring a few uh, hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal uh, retreat practice or formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe I can't. I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or this old familiar experience or this strong emotional state or this pain, this discomfort in the body or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. Maybe a feeling of being frozen or caught or just simply unable to open and receive the experience fully, deeply, with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we believe it, it's his fault. It's because she because they, it's because this place, it's because the weather, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest it, manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, a feeling maybe of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or just not being enough not doing it right, 
not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. All of this is really rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably uh, different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. This comes from the Taoist master Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or the perfect man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others. Which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that we're actually often afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice meeting and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me in response, fear is just fear. (laughs) Well, when I first heard this from him, my inward response, I didn't say this out loud, was, well, that's really easy for you to say. Obviously, uh, a fair degree of resistance and a fair degree of irritation in this thought. But eventually, I did begin to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice, our practice of concentration rooted in mindfulness and metta towards ourself, kindness towards ourself. We begin to be able to meet and receive fear, come close to it, to look it in the eye and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century uh, Persian poet Hafiz said, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and our heart get stronger and our concentration, mindfulness and metta muscles develop, We can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, 
and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I am not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never, ever see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me or mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly, to see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, uh, I read an article in um, the National Geographic magazine about uh, a woman named Garland, a 40-year-old woman named Garland, uh, who was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And uh, her husband, there was a group of climbers, including herself, her husband, and a few other climbers. She and a couple of the climbers made it to the top. Her husband turned back at some point. And in that article, there were quotes from both of them about fear, their experience of fear. So from her husband, Ralph, he, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. Garland was a practicing Buddhist, and when she got to the top of K2, she placed a small Buddha that she had in her backpack on the top of K2. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. And of course, it doesn't work to ignore, to try to suppress difficult emotions, because what happens? They reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks our, or indeadens actually, our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. 
This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And again, something important to remember is that our practice isn't about purposefully dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught, when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. The experience of the breath, of course, and also at times the experience of emotional states. An intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or without pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. As we continue to engage in our concentration practice, our anapanasati practice, these same principles apply, even though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in a mindfulness-based vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So now, uh, taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger and in fact uh, spoke about really liking her anger. She said she felt very strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. (coughs) She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and then they'd feel the sharp sting of her needles, the sharp sting of her anger needles, and they'd move away. Consequently, she was a very lonely person. And yet so identified in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose what she felt was the fuel of her life, if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really practice, really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself 
to open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta. Don't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, or irritation. Practice changes our mind and is about making the choice to transform our heart, to transform our mind, to embody love and compassion. It's actually a courageous choice. It opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but to stay still, be here, be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experiencing, experience things just as they are, with a very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year was for two months, and then uh, for one month when I went there the second year. And one student who stayed for the whole two months of practice for the first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful big city businessman in Warsaw who had very diligently been practicing Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear, much of the time throughout his childhood, with this fear actually still present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and he'd taken on the habits of thought, words, and to some degree actions that this, of this same ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prizhaka, Poland, this man diligently and very mindfully practiced metta with just one phrase. May I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. As the year progressed, he recognized his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner. He recognized it sooner and sooner. Consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often. He returned to Prajeka for a month of the retreat the following year, a much changed and much happier man. 
What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be quite difficult. The body is tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large, and so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's been drawn that isn't to be passed, isn't to be crossed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hatred develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to your experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and focused depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger's not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories, spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone. And various changing bodily sensations with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out, the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment, it's very helpful to just try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body. Feeling the 
emotion directly and in itself without the story. What are you feeling? Well, maybe heat or tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning at this point, what is your relationship to these sensations? Is there resistance? More contraction? Give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and the breath with walking. Or you might open to the natural world outside. The trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky, the smells, the warmth of the sun and the coolness of the air on the skin. Take an interest. Notice the small creatures of the world, chipmunks, birds, maybe insects. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, Afflictive emotion disappears. It actually isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Beyond compare in a very quiet, wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can both be an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. So remembering the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And again from the Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj who often taught in a dialogue with his students. So the student asks him a question. What is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, and fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. 
the truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, it doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear non-self-absorbed concentration and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now we'll spend just a a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment, and the Pali word for this is tanha. These unwholesome states in the mind, they're likened uh, to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. Our heart and mind is clouded when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future. For instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think we need things to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. So for instance, it's in part what got you here on retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, uh, a personal practice that I was told was one of Mother Teresa's prayers and practices. And this was uh, sent to me in the mail, actually, by someone. Now, she said, deliver me, O Jesus. I'll say, deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, 
from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She didn't leave a thing out, did she? (laughs) Shortly after I received this and read it, I got a phone call from a friend. And I said, oh, I have to read you this over the phone. I just got this. And I read it to him, and his response was, oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) Well, that's true. We do have a lot to do. But I actually, every time I read that, I find it quite inspiring. (coughs) Many of us can become quite attached uh, to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and also uh, expend an incredible amount of energy and time uh, uh, trying to hold on or uh, to certain objects or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe even here in retreat. Maybe some particular wonderful sitting you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you had on your last retreat or some other retreat five years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a very simple and quite mundane example. Uh, Some years ago I was at a a retreat center uh, here in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful flower gardens that I'd I'd ever been around. And I was walking along uh, next to one of these gardens and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from. And it was from a particular flower. So I got down very close uh, next to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go do something else. But I wanted to stay there and just continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and just go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. And I was experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of a kind of burning irritation in the heart and in the mind. I got up and I walked away uh, to do what needed to be done next. But there was still a clinging 
uh, to the sweet smell, even though uh, it was totally gone from my uh, experience, from the field of my experience, I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was planning as I was walking along when I could get back to that garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering, and it happened so quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing and clear knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and was a very profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension stress, a burning, burning desire. And for many people there's often some confusion, some delusion that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on and through each of the six sense doors in this way. And then he went on to say burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a a recipe and at risk of uh, giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up occasionally, uh, I'd like to share this one with you. It's called A Recipe for Unhappiness. And the ingredients is one cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. (laughs) 
one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, three teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. <laughs> and here's what you do with this, all this stuff. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using an on, on and off turn on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is and inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnished with minced envy and serve immediately. So, um, Another teaching, similar teaching, but stated very differently, from Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. the Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, investigation, rooted in kindness. That meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without Getting caught up, getting caught up, or getting swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see, to see them so clearly that we see through them and see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. And one way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Mahayana, from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the red lotus, the blue lotus, the white lotus, do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps, and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult emotions, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. 
And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons, so-called poisons, being transformed through practice to what are sometimes called the nectars or the Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So just for a moment now, looking at just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, without the self-centered, uh, without, with no self-grasping, basically, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting strong desire without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self with, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear and without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go, to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find is what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity, in the heart and in the mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really, truly begin to know that this moment 
is enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience that a deep and potentially profound concentration, this important and amazing footstep on the path to liberation, is available through our diligent practice and not clinging to anything along the way. In closing the talk this evening with a poem called Hokusai Says, by a poem written by a man named Roger Keyes. And um, Hokusai, as I'm sure some of you know, was a very famous Japanese painter. And one of his most well-known paintings uh, was a huge wave uh, starting to lap over. And it looks, the lapping over looks kind of like fingers reaching down. And down underneath, at the bottom of the wave, uh, is a small boat with people in it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. He says, every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And that's it. Quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.